You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. This is currently an episode of M Relay Beyond Diversity, Creating Global Cities. This is part two of a two-part series looking at diversity beyond the buzzwords. Thank you. And welcome up Imam Nur. From our reflections inside and outside the art gallery, we take a slightly different turn. Over to you, Gabrielle. Thank you. Imam Nur, thank you very much. Uh, it's an absolute honour to uh, interview you today. Um, I think I'll follow the lead of the interviewers before me and ask you to briefly introduce yourself in one or two sentences. My name is Noor Mohammed Orsame. I'm an imam based in Melbourne and I have been active as an imam since 2000, 2001, just after year 12. Okay, thank you. Can you describe your life uh, before 2010, briefly? Well, I think um, before 2010, I would probably say before 2013, um, because my life took a change in um, November 2013. In November 2013, in fact, this November will be um, the fifth year anniversary. Um, it feels like yesterday. It's when I started a group that looks after the welfare of LGBTIQ plus um, youth, uh, specifically of um, the Muslim background, um, catering for Melbourne only. Hence, um, if you look at the email, it says marhaba.melbourne. So we started here um, in Melbourne from my humble lounge room with a geriatric American bulldog who's gone to God now, um, Chico, um, <laughs> staring at me. Um, but in November 2013, I started this group, and um, then um, I didn't know what the uh, change was going to be, but that's where the shift has been. Prior to that, I have been active as an imam. I was on the board of Imams of Victoria here for about six years. Prior to that, I was just one of those um, um, typical imams running mosques. The moment when you decided, or the kind of period where you decided to come out as an openly gay person, an openly gay Muslim um, imam, understandably that is a very deep uh, personal decision that is to be made. were you aware at the time of the uh, public and political dimension of making that decision? I didn't think of that. Um, I thought around um, the mid of November 2013, I was contacted by a school counselor in an Islamic school that was um, providing counseling to a young um, transgender um, person. Um, and um, there was a need, there was a need um, throughout the whole time I was an imam. There was a vacuum, uh, particularly in the support services for LGBTIQ plus Muslims um, in particular, but I think um, in general, um, even multicultural communities who are LGBTIQ plus, there is a vacuum in the support services. So I thought, how could I um, fill that vacuum? I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't have any manual to follow. I took a leap. Um, I didn't know where I was going to land, but um, thankfully five years later I can say that it had saved lives. It um, united families. It um, restored hope um, on a global scale to young people that have um, 
thought that there was no hope. So going back in November 2013 with Chico, my American Bulldog, staring at me, if you asked me back then, um, what do you see will happen in five years' time, I didn't think um, it would um, have such an impact. You were probably well aware of the immediate consequences. Um, what do you risk when you come out as a gay Muslim, as a gay imam? You know, um, I know my community intimately. I have been, as I said, active as an imam. Throughout even year 12, I was the school captain in my Islamic schools and I was the imam of that school and the last half of year 11. So I knew um, the moment that I stood on a principle like that, the losses and the risks would be, um, would come home very quickly. And they did. Um, but I was willing to live with that. Um, I wasn't willing to live with the fact that a young person was being um, terrorized in the name of religion, told to be either A or B or black and white. And, um, you know, saying this is what God said. I wasn't willing to live with that. So. I thought, okay, um, notwithstanding the threats, the, the threats were um, within the first few months, the um, threats came to my front home. And um, I thought, you know, how can we counter this ideology that believes what you do in the bedroom um, is um, something that justifies for somebody else to kill you in the name of God? Um, and this is the commonality of the three Abrahamic religions. I mean, these texts, um, Old Testament, New Testament, and the Quran. I, I often say we were, we the most, up until Abraham, we were okay. I think uh, after Abraham is when we, it's one family that has just become very dysfunctional. So the framing of this event talks about, or the kind of brief for this event talks about the framing of diversity or it questions the framing of diversity and whether it keeps um, certain communities and individuals at the margins. Do you think that that applies to um, your circumstances and your community's circumstances? Yes. Um, you know, we don't have the concept of excommunication in the Muslim gerontocracy. Um, gerontocrats are, gerontocracy is governed by old men. Um, this, uh, the gerontocrats of our this, um, religious leadership, you, they cannot excommunicate you. However, the excommunication happens in a different way. So I knew um, when I started the group in November 2013 that it was going to happen, but in different ways. So that was something I was willing to live with. I contacted, and the first people that I approached were the established LGBT organizations. And uh, you know, there's one, what's called patriarchy, and there's what I like to call gaytriarchy. <laughs> um, you know, uh, organizations that existed 20 years, 30 years ago to address a vacuum, to address particularly um, New South Wales AIDS Council, the Victorian AIDS Council. These were organizations that um, came to exist to address a need of um, the community. But later on, as um, bureaucracy and money started drawing agendas um, and intentions became adulterated. Um, um, and they made people shift from the need of, um, I mean, I remember Earlier this year, I was in Sydney as part of uh, the 40-year anniversary of the Mardi Gras. 
And I sat on a panel with the 78ers, you know, the first people that marched. I wasn't even born um, when they were marching. But um, these were people that went through horrific um, journeys back then. Um, and, you know, I went to Surrey Hills Police Station, which is where they threw a lot of them. <laughs> Ironically, it's um, now a mental health clinic. I said, why don't you just knock the building down, turn it into a park or something? There's trauma that yeah. happened there. Yeah. Um, but um, we forget, and I think in, in Arabic, um, the term that refers to human is insan. Insan means human. And it's derived from the word nisyan. Nisyan is forgetful. So we humans, we forget, and we generally forget when we become too comfortable. There is a need. We have over 4 million people in our country, and it's a number that's um, on the rise. Um, with mental health, we have a, a, what I like to refer to as a, an avalanche of misery coming into psychiatric wards and emergency departments. I work um, often at the Alfred Hospital, and most of it is young people. And we have bureaucrats and officials throwing money around left, right, and center, and they somehow still seem to not find the solution how to address this misery. Um, and it, then the responsibility falls on our shoulders. We can't leave it to others. I thought, what can I do? And I had a lot um, in my gaze to, um, to pick and choose from, and the battles continue. So you've come a long way then since 2013. Um, in your journey and in kind of public education awareness and in kind of changing the the lives of of other individuals within your community, what what's what's what are your hopes for the future? What is this? What's still to work on? I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> you know, 40 years ago, when I was on the panel with the elders earlier this year, um, it took 40 years. Back then, religion was used to justify. Um, throwing people in prisons and um, publicizing people's names so that they lost jobs and you know so forth. It was religion. Um, so my hope, you know, I don't know if I'll be here in 40 years' time, but my hope is that in my lifetime um, a shift like that happens. And you know, thankfully there are promising signs. Um, there are spaces that are being carved out around the world. There's a shift happening globally. And you see that especially with young people, young, fresh, educated minds who are saying, yes, spirituality is important to us, but you know, our identity is also important and we're not going to be stuck to you know, old ways of thinking. Mm. So as we evolve, we also learn to embrace. Mm. What has to change for those significant, um, what has to change to, for those significant changes to take place? Um, it's, I think, a very when you have um, leaders who are holding on to power, as, um, particularly I can speak as an imam, uh, you know, we still have imams who have great powers, um, running huge um, institutions, you know, mosques, um, schools, who have the power to um, convey a message of hope to young people. Yet when we are still stuck in um, you know, black and white mentality, then we do a lot of damage to our young people. So from a harm reduction and minimization um, point of view, what needs to be done is um, 
I say to young people, wait five, ten years, those who are in positions of authority will die, um, <laughs> and you'll take over. So just not to repeat the sins of the father, I think that's um, what our challenge is. Yeah. Um, I guess one event uh, in recent history that we haven't forgotten yet is the marriage equality plebiscite. Um, and um, I guess it, like as damaging as that was for the LGBTIQ um, community as a whole, I can uh, imagine that for the Muslim LGBTIQ community, it was probably even more pronounced. Um, the uh, National Council of Imams and the Council of Imams in Queensland um, coming out against it or the Australian Federation of Islamic um, Councils unable to make a statement because of the division within the Muslim community. Um, what would you have liked to have seen at that moment? Do you think it could have played out any differently for um, young and, and old Muslim LGBTI people? I think it wasn't an issue on young people's minds. Um, I wish we didn't spend a hundred million dollars on it. I wish that hundred million dollars was channeled towards our palliative care departments, our psychiatric institutions. It would have been more productive mm. or even housing um, for young people. But, um, you know, we went through it. I mean, I'm against the institution of marriage. It's something like um, every other institution that started, you know, with some sort of authenticity, but later on as power you know, dynamics came into play, um, it became adulterated. You know, when that same discussion was going on, I remember returning in no November last year, um, I remember returning from Sydney as well to facilitate this first um, heterosexual um, but interfaith wedding. Mm. Heterosexual, interfaith, in Sydney in 2017, you know, boy, Muslim, girl, Christian, or vice versa, vice versa, um, could not find one imam that would um, facilitate the religious nikah, not the government one, religious one, because each imam in 2017 in Sydney said that one party needed to convert to the other party. Okay. Mm. So, so you're, you're a celebrant as well, are you? Yes, but not registered. I've uh -huh. too much paperwork. Okay. <laughs> so I did that one, and it was interestingly one of three that happened in a very short period of time. Um, and I said no. You know, and, and interestingly, last month one of the couples um, had a baby. Yeah. So, I mean, imams uh, preventing such love from happening. I mm. said no, no. I said it's not true. You don't need to convert to anybody's religion, you know. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for your courage and for being my interviewee today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs> Excellent. And everyone, please thank Gabrielle. And Rohini, can I please ask you to the stage? Rather than feeling perhaps fatigued if we were on the relay field right now, I hope you're feeling incredibly energised by these conversations and I'd love to have any thoughts that you have on the end. But for now, if I could please hand over to you, Imam Nur. Thank you very much, Rain. Please tell me about your work um, at the Immigration Museum and how long you've been there. What's your vision in the next 12 months as well? And yes, and to begin first, tell us a bit about yourself, sorry. Yes. Thank you, Imam Nur. First of all, can I just say how um, 
privileged I feel to be here and in speaking with you and to hearing what has sounded like music to my ears. Um, a little bit about me. Um, I come to my role as general manager of the Immigration Museum after a very long, like almost 30-year history in business. So I am a bit of an outsider in the artistic world. I've always been a creative soul, but um, really found a career in, a, in, a in, in the corporate world. I came to be at the Immigration Museum because I was tapped on the shoulder by the CEO of Museums Victoria, who brought me on board to drive the transformation of the Immigration Museum into what was being termed in our strategic plan as a living, vibrant, multicultural space that welcomes and engages all communities. When I heard about that vision, I was really excited and I thought, That's ex I couldn't think of anything I would rather be doing. I was at the time at KPMG in full flight in my corporate career. And um, coming on board to drive this change was something that I was really, really passionately engaged with. I'd be very happy to sort of share with you what that journey looks like if Please, that yes. is what you're asking me. Yes. Because it's really interesting. It's like nothing I ever imagined from the outside. So when I came into this sector, and this is a sector, and again, you know, we can sort of talk about whether that's appropriate. We call it the glam sector. Um, you know, galleries, libraries, archives, museums, is that appropriate? Who's determined it? You know, all of these, these um, notions that I think others are so beautifully articulate in challenging and discussing. Um, and I actually feel a little bit inadequate in that space. My tool is not, my tool of trade is not the poetry with which I can sort of express things. I feel more like, kind of like the laborer making it happen. <laughs> um, taking some of these beautiful concepts and ideas and actually bringing it to reality and actually navigating the harsh terrain and the landscape that we have to navigate. The ground realities of what driving change is all about inside these institutions because it is very, very tough. It is slow. And that's what I can share with you. Right from the beginning, even though we had that vision that it, it was in the strategic plan, just the process of actually bringing people along. Now, I've been in this role for 12 months. The process of actually bringing people along on that journey to drive that change brought about, I mean, it in fact amplified just the difference of opinion and viewpoint inside the institution itself. That these institutions are deeply political, everybody's there, not because, even though from the outside it seems like, in fact, my family said, oh, you know, you're running a museum now, that must be such a relief, it's so easy and, you know, you must have such a wonderfully relaxed, one, what, a, what an exciting life and so on. I mean, nothing could be further away from the truth, actually. Because what we don't realize is that these are deeply, you know, people are so vested in it. And as you've said, people have put their lives and souls and hearts into, into these spaces. And, you know, as, you, as somebody else quite rightly said, that 
that you're donating cultural capital, you're donating cultural intelligence. So you feel like you're a piece of this institution. So again, driving change where everybody holds so much opinion about what that change should look like is in itself really, really challenging. We're 12 months into that journey. I'm so proud to say that we have actually achieved um, we found common ground in developing a new vision. We have restructured now. I mean, we, in fact, we're about to have a big team building session on uh, Wednesday because we've re the vision that we all crafted together is so inspiring and has inspired the imagination of, of not only our staff, but which is, of course, co-created by staff and community, but that it's actually inspired the board and so on to then enable us to reorganize ourselves in order to achieve this vision. And I'll just tell you what that vision is. It is people connected to our shared humanity and embracing our diversity for a just future. To deliver on that new vision and mission and purpose for the Immigration Museum means that we are going to reorganize in a way that will enable us, enable the broader Museums Victoria organization to support us, to deliver to it. It has taken us 12 months to get here. The next 12 months, we will all be in a, what's called a project transformation, Immigration Museum project transformation team, and we are going to try and bring this vision to reality. This is personal. Um advice for people who are in the field um, that could learn from your experience. What do you think some of the bureaucratic struggles that you, you know, um, that will probably be a hindrance to you um, achieving your vision to the, uh, to the in museums? In fact, those bureaucratical struggles are what we've actually uh, navigated and we've actually come to the other side of it. And what they looked like 12 months ago was that when I came on board as general manager of the Immigration Museum, I had, let's say, a team of about 25 people inside the museum uh, and then a few more that were working outside in the, in, in the, the office that we, that we all inhabit out beside the museum. But our staff reported to about 10 different managers across Museums Victoria. So you had marketing reporting to marketing, or facilities reporting to facilities, exhibitions reporting to somewhere else, um, you know, customer services reporting somewhere else. So you can, if you can imagine how challenging it can be to try and run a cohesive, or to, you know, to run an organization or build a cohesive team when you've got people reporting to different people with different ideas of what the end goal could look like, you know, um, it, was, it was quite challenging. However, those are the legacy structures inside these institutions in that, um, you know, we have a centralized system and, and we have, for example, our exhibitions and curators or our research and collections. They all operate, I mean, really speaking, they have traditionally been operating in silos, right? So breaking down those barriers, making the organization more porous, uh, you know, becoming more collaborative internally, that was the those were the bureaucratic challenges. But we have got to a place, again, what's brought us all together is the power of this vision. That's been the uniting force. And we constructed the vision following 
three consultations with uh, key, uh, you know, business, government, philanthropic groups, and then four other community consultations in the north, south, and east and west of Melbourne in collaboration with the councils like Dandenong City Council, Maribyrnong City Council, City of Melbourne, and Durban City Council. Where So we've consulted in excess of about 150 people um, to arrive at a common view of where immigration museums should be heading. And it was that process and that final output that has brought everyone together and that has then enabled us to, to be reorganized under like a, you know, single leadership structure, single account, point of accountability, so that we can all then galvanize as a team and now focus on making this happen over the next 12 months. And I'll probably ask also the last, how do you um, address this immigration hysteria um, that's coming from our politicians um, through the museum, through conveying a message through visual arts or so forth. How do you address this phobia that is being passed on of you know this fear of immigrants and migration, um, even though this is the most multicultural um, society that we live in? In the museum, how do you address um, or how do you provide a response to counter that argument? So, so far, because we're a government institution, it has meant that you know, the, the, ins the organization has not been had the authority to really be very front-footed in terms of critiquing, questioning, challenging the government because they are our primary funding source. Um, and that's just the reality up until now. As we reimagine the museum, we are becoming a broader, braver, bolder museum. So we are seeking the license to be able to do this, right. um, to challenge the question to express. But, you know, I don't want to suggest that we're going to be doing this instantly and that you're going to hear Immigration Museum building its voice and raising its voice on things because we have to navigate this carefully. We're going to do this with buy-in from government. And I think that's been the secret of our success so far. Everything that we've done so far, it's been getting people on board. There are people in government who think like you, who believe in things just like you, but are limited by some of their own structures and their challenges. And we've got to respect that as well. So I think this is a bit of a balancing act. But together, I think we're all ready to move, move forward. I mean, I would have loved to have been able to be more front-footed about, you know, Pauline Hansen's recent um, uh, commentary, etc. But we're, we are getting ready for this. So just be aware that in the next 12 months, and certainly after that, you're going to see, you're going to hear a much more vocal locally and globally. So we're intending to be a museum that wants to be loved locally, we want to be more popular locally as well. So we want more people coming and visiting and lending their voice to it. Um, but we also want to be heard globally. So, and, and another thing that, that we're going to do is that we're going to be exploring universal themes that connect us as humans. So apart from telling stories of migration, which is what we've been focused on so far, we want to broaden the focus by now telling stories of settlement. Mm. 
and what that settlement into a multicultural society looks like and what the challenges are. And as we navigate th through those issues, we want to explore our shared humanity. What does it mean to be human today? And we want to explore those themes that unite us. Like the first exhibition is around love. And we will explore love from many perspectives. You know, from ethnicity, from gender, from ability, disability, you know, various lenses. So that is where we are heading. Exploring universal themes of what makes us human, but from various lenses. Because we feel that's going to be a real solution to the challenge. So we want to be a useful museum. We want to be a space where we can all come and reimagine the kind of society we want to co-create and we want to inhabit that society. And we want the museum to be a place, a trusted space that is a reflection of our hopes for the future. That's where we're headed. This is just probably a comment, maybe a future collaboration opportunity. One of the things um, we have done with our group, I'm not sure this is something that um, definitely would be in your mind, art as a form of therapy. Um, we thought, you know, we can sit and talk about the trauma, and, but we thought, how can we come together and do a piece of art um, with our members through, you know, so we did two things. One was um, we did this mosaic table. So we had an eight-seater mosaic table, a round table, and we got some mosaics and we said to the uh, members, um, how would you put your experience, whether it's with family, whether it's with community, um, as an LGBTIQ plus person, in one word. So we had, imagine, eight of these in, in our members um, sitting in one table and we sold that table. It was one of the first pieces of art that we did. Another thing we did was um, pottery, clay pottery. Um, and each member did, you know, they people did not have experiences in doing pottery prior to that. But it was th very therapeutic to come and just do something rather than, you know, to talk. So maybe this is um, something that, um, because I think as uh, an immigration museum, you know, most of the issues would be issues that are relevant to migrants um, and generally not all migrant issues are traumatic but um, the some uh, big deal uh, big majority of them are maybe that's um, something that I could share with you as well um, oh, thank you and of course in fact we are questioning our practices for the future we want to be more participatory we want to be more immersive it's not about building an in exhibition, putting pictures and so on, and then interacting with that exhibition any longer. It is also about these immersive experiences. It's about, it's about that moment in time, that experience of doing something together, working on your ha hands together that actually enables us to connect as humans, build trust amongst, between each other, understand each other, uh, build more familiarity with each other, which gives us a sense of confidence in the other. Um, so we are absolutely on that, that, that journey where our public programming is becoming, uh, you know, a centerpiece of the museum. So it's not just the exhibitions, it's the, it's the programming surrounding it in all the different spaces, enlivening our spaces with, with rich minds who come together and that act of sharing in an activity together itself is that moment of transformation. So our whole... Um, we're totally open to that. In fact, that's, that, that's what we are much more 
uh, excited about. And, and we, I'd be inviting you to start inhabiting these spaces and to bring your rich minds and your dialogue and your thoughts to the table at Immigration Museum. Thank you so much. Everyone, please join me in welcoming uh, Hannah Asafiri and thanking Imam Nur for his time with us today. Where's who's cold? <laughs> <laughs> there are some blankets available to the left here. And it's difficult to say what's at the heart of any city, but many Melburnians would tell you our food could be just that. And someone who has been feeding not only our hearts, our mouths, but also our souls for a very long period of time is our next guest. And I'd like to hand it over to you two. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you. Well, Hannah, first of all, can I just declare that I love this woman. I think she's just incredible. So it's uh, really wonderful to be sitting here. And I do, I do know her a little bit. And we've had... Um, uh, a moment where Hannah had actually come to the Immigration Museum during that period of the Iftar dinner. In fact, we hadn't talked about this, Hannah, that I might ask you about it, but I just thought, well, that's just the perfect thing to start off this conversation. Let's talk about that, that Iftar dinner at the museum because it was just a magical evening, apart from the food. <laughs> Look, thank you, and... Um I think with every event, the importance of echoing the acknowledgement of the Indigenous conversation and recognising that we are still on lands where we don't afford basic uh, human rights, basic trust, uh, basic dignity to our Indigenous fellows. And we are a people, yes, who continue to benefit from, and we are benefactors of the continued denial and tussle that is happening in the background. We don't even have a basic treaty uh, with our Indigenous people. So today's theme seems to be on diversity, but it is founded on um, a land that we can do better. And yes, we preface most occasions and events with uh, the need for symbolic recognition. And we do that well. I don't think we go far enough to impacting and affecting behavioural change. I'm somebody that sees and believes um, there are solutions to this and the solutions are that we partner up with every occasion and they become foundational to all the activism that we do. That when we can partner up with Indigenous people, we will change the conversation because no matter how marginalised we are, we are benefactors of this continued denial. So starting with that, and I think the importance of continuing to agitate for that conversation. Human rights, social justice and freedom is for everybody. And we, when we can see ourselves tied to the struggles of the other and our own liberation in the liberation of another is when we are truly free as a society. So let's start there. Now, thank you. Um, and secondly, and thank you to all the speakers and thank you to this opportunity and especially Melbourne. I'm somebody, if anybody knows me, um, I'm, I start with the impossible and the why not. Um, I don't start with what is realistic and what is achievable. What is realistic and achievable will come. You have to dream big. We have to be visionary. We are a people that need to speak to uh, some of the tensions and some of the global issues upon us at the moment. And these aren't some, it's something that's going to fix itself by magic. 
whether we're talking about displaced people, wars, uh, environmental um, disasters in the continued lack of vision that's coming from governments. Now, these are, I guess, uh, these are not only our responsibility, but these are our legacy that we will leave behind for the next generation to come. Um, so, no matter our uh, vocation and or profession, whether we be artists, whether we be social activists or advocates, whether we be restaurateurs, um, we all have a role to play and we all have a role and the importance of putting our hand up to say this is our business and this is our responsibility. We are living during unprecedented times and tensions at the moment. And I'm somebody that tries to bring to the table not only some of these tensions, but specifically the gendered nature of these conversations. How women fare, the conversations around women, and how when we enable women, no matter the cultural context, we truly progress all of societies. Women raise men and women raise good men. And women will change the attitudes when we empower and lift women. Um, so that needs to be just the backdrop to understanding, I guess, how I pitch a conversation. Um, we, yes, we continued, uh, we contributed to and we will partner up with, no matter the institution, the Immigration Museum, we did a gig at the NGV, we're doing one today at Fed Square. Um, I'm somebody who works in hospitality. And I guess we are mindful of our trend and mindful of the continued changes that have happened in hospitality. We have begun from cafes um, and restaurants, being places and spaces that we occasionally frequent, to now uh, we have become an extension of your dining room. People no longer eat at home. Uh, most places and most often people either eat in front of... Um, uh, an iPad, an iPhone, a TV set and or at cafes and restaurants. Now, that is not just a problem because we no longer connect with one another at home. Uh, in the home, we used to be a place the transmission of social and familial values happened around the dining table. Now, in the absence of that, that is created and left a void. With us and at the Moroccan Soup Bar, we are happy and happily putting our hand up to saying, we will be an extension of your dining table. We will be an extension of your dining room and the places and spaces where those family and social values need to be discussed and had. Um, and I guess we do that because often we find ourselves um, advocating for uh, issues that are socially difficult. Um, around same-sex marriage, Islamophobia, um, conversations around the climate, indigenous reconciliation, all those issues, we try and intersect them with uh, hospitality. And during an evening, oftentimes I find myself kind of going, holding the room to attention and saying, you know, uh, making a comment on whatever uh, somebody in our government may or may not have said that is harmful and further divisive to our communities. So I'm, I'm somebody who I guess would like us to dream about the impossible and to think about ways and means that we can transcend some of the nonsense around diversity um, and especially when we set up diversity in competition with privilege and when we set up one another's differences um, as though immigrants and, and those that have been othered are simply recipients of our goodwill. 
we are contributors, uh, profoundly contributors to shaping the face of this society. And we need to learn not to assimilate but to celebrate those differences. So that's just a little bit about us and, and uh, our modes of thinking in informing what we do. So Hannah, speaking about the subject of trust yes. and you know, how to build that trust in order to create or um, to influence true and meaningful diversity, because we don't have another word for this word. Um, in order to elicit or create a sense of trust, you need to tell the truth. And in order to reconcile any atrocity, you need to tell the truth. Uh, so I think uh, truth-telling will create a sense of trust. But equally, we, we find ourselves living during uh, times where the conversation around diversity, especially, is, is doublespeak. It's loaded with doublespeak. On the one hand, we talk about Australia being a multicultural uh, society, Melbourne being the ultimate example of that, but we only encourage and accept our food and festivals. We don't really um, extend that, that acceptance and celebration of profound and genuine cultural differences. Um, so, and I'm somebody who, who's witnessed over the past, I guess, 15 to 20 years, a shift from once upon a time, we were curious about one another's differences. We would look to somebody that was different to ourselves, whether they be a different gender, a different colour, a different sexuality. No matter that difference, we look curiously to one another. And we need curiosity in order to, to celebrate difference. We need to be open and we need to be inquiring. We have replaced that in a very short amount of time, in a very deliberate and sinister way, from government conversations all the way through to media representations and the like, we've replaced the curiosity with fear and hate. And I speak specifically about the gr a group of people uh, and Islam in particular. Now, those conversations do not and will not create a sense of trust in a community when once upon a time your neighbour was somebody you look curiously to, all of a sudden you find yourself afraid of. So... I think a central element to trust has to be to recreate a sense of curiosity and to recognise the role of government conversation around these issues. We cannot encourage people to integrate whilst we continue to other them. And, and, and I think for the Muslim community, especially at the moment, this conversation is being heavily felt by women. So, Hannah, you've, your journey um, in having setting, uh, set up the Moroccan, Moroccan Soup Bar, in employing the women that you've employed, the number of women over the last 20 years, I'm curious about, you know, some of the decisions, the hard decisions, the choices and the trade-offs you've had to make in order to continue with integrity on, this, on the journey that you've been on. Can you give us some insight into what that's been like for you? Um, look... I mean, my starting premise is why not and why aren't things better and why aren't things differently rather than seeking, uh, I guess, permission and or uh, seeking to be legitim legitimated by somebody else or an institution. or um, And we sought initially to take 
the very uh, occasion which subjugates women. And women have been conditioned, no matter the cultural background, um, to be in kitchens. And in kitchens, we, no matter whether we're literate or not, we have learnt and it's become part of our social expression to cook. Now, those, uh, those uh, tasks, I guess, have been made a source of the subjugation of women. And I saw, rather than... And I think it was Einstein who said, do not measure a fish by its ability to climb a tree. Rather than uh, ask women to be learned and educated and offer resumes and have expertise and experience in order to then be empowered, I thought, why don't we start where women are at and why don't we simply just change the circumstances around uh, those conditions? So instead of cooking and food and being in kitchens, being a source of our subjugation and uh, continuing to victimise women, that can be and become a place of our empowerment where we pay women for their employment, women are placed in and around one another where there's advocacy, we connect up with one another's experiences, where you don't see yourself as completely in isolation, oh, I'm the only one this is happening to. And it then becomes, interestingly, and over time, the, the women themselves become champions of the very causes that have left them disadvantaged in the first place and or in crisis. And there's been a myriad examples of that where women have advocated for against female genital mutilation, against domestic violence, against young marriage. And that has happened through and, and through being validated in places and spaces that have genuinely incorporated and embraced women. Thank you for that. Um, Hannah, what is, I think you've touched on some of this in what you've just said, but what does the next five to ten years look like if Melbourne was truly to be a global city and one where its people felt at one with each other? What does that look like and how will we get there? Um, look, I'm, I'm somebody who thinks uh, we are all... I think we need to move beyond identity politics and the whole idea that we come together along gender lines or sexuality and or ethnicity. Um, I think the term intersectionality, we need to understand it properly and we need to understand it um, as a concept with a pulse. It's a living, breathing concept. Um, and what it practically means is that, to me, that we take responsibility for our relative privileges. And no matter who we are, we are we may be marginalised in one setting, but we're relatively privileged in another. And with those privileges, instead of shying away from them and feeling a sense of shame that is attached to privilege, which seems to be kind of seems to flavour the conversations, whether we talk about white privilege or male privilege, I think instead of shying away from privileges, we need to embrace them and recognise the responsibility that comes with privilege. And in terms of future and recognition of the future, if we can all recognise our relative roles and responsibilities that come with our privileges and then lift those that have been made more vulnerable as a consequence of the privileges that we have. So I think there's some of the attitudes that can make a difference and tip us into how we may be able to progress and move forward. And lastly, I think um, not making assumptions. Uh, 
importantly, we kind of continue to look for lazy, easy answers. We look to somebody else and we go, we want to tick the boxes. Oh, yes, you're Muslim, it may mean X, Y, Z. You're a woman, it may mean X, Y, Z. Whereas um, I think uh, adopt a mode of inquiry and openness. And that will, in a sense, in itself create the curiosity that is necessary. My final question. Um, Hannah, you've been at the vanguard of change and social change for women in particular. Um, I think the society owes a debt of gratitude to you, first of all. How can we all, as a small community gathered here today, what could we be doing specifically to support you in your work? Do tell us. Oh, um I don't see myself as me. I, I think I'm part of a community who, um, I guess, I simply speak a truth and a truth that is founded on the betterment of our societies who celebrates our differences and doesn't fear them. And I'm simply at times in awe of the continued and the myriad of people that are the foundation of a growing movement. So... Um, I just think if you attach to a vision and a vision that is about humanity and celebrating diversity in society and not be afraid to continue to look for reference and legitimacy from others. Um, and look, this is, this is a movement that is inevitable and it is really being led by, and I'll just echo the conversation around the young, that the young are the future solutions and we've got to stop treating them like they're a problem and we've got to enable them when they take up platforms uh, to really offer solutions to the mess that we're creating. I'm simply one of many and uh, will continue to be until such a time as this conversation tips into the mainstream. So on your behalf, could I just say to everyone here that if you've not been to the Moroccan super, you absolutely must do that because it is a delicious space and place in which to spend an evening, um, and I have no doubt that you will walk away feeling nourished in more ways than one, and definitely nourished in the soul. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You. Thank you so much, Rahini. Can I please call on Stanislava to join us on the stage? No musical chairs. Hello. I'm so chuffed to be interviewing you. Hello. Hello. I wish I was interviewing you, but all right. Well, let's do a mutual interview. Hey, guys, is that all right? Um, well, maybe we'll start with the same kind of uh, theme. Tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and your art and what you do, and you can take as many sentences as you like. <laughs> So I'm Stanislava, I'm an artist, and uh, my practice is about data mapping the changing topographies of war and conflict zones. So I work alone, I work on the ground in full independence, no governments, no NGOs. Um, and what I'm really interested in is how landscape and topography retains memory of a political event, and how is it testament to history, or a testament to immigration, or a testament to human rights abuses. Um, and that's sort of at the core of my practice, is this intersection between art and politics and tech. Um, 
So I guess with that, what do you think uh, the role of art... Because at, at the moment it seems like uh, a whole host of things are being redefined mm -hmm. and we're redefining notions of gender, we're redefining notions of ethnicity, we're redefining, um, I guess, how to progress and move forward. How and what do you see the role of gendered art in particular mm -hmm. and in particular your style of art, which I find amazing when it comes to tattooings in particular... Mm -hmm. Um, how do you think that can play a role? And I guess there's two parts to this question. And how do you find it received? Is it received differently depending on the gender of the recipient mm. um, of your art? Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I feel for me it's really important that my work is a really active denial of the photojournalistic image. Uh, and I tr kind of do believe that any image of war is also essentially... An image of kind of pro-war or, you know, what? how do you talk about war and how do you talk about your experience of these things without using the established visual language? And for me, and um, I'm kind of curious that it hasn't come up today in discussion, but it's about soft power, you know, and I think women are really, really wonderful um, in this kind of regard, but it's how do we communicate through the accessible? How do we communicate diversity through art or through food, you know, and that is the most, or hospitality, you know, and it's in the name that you open the door. And so for me in my practice, it's really important uh, to kind of make really beautiful things, you know, and because uh, at the end of the day, I think we're so fundamentally these dinosaur brains and we, th we like to think that we're something a little bit more, but we're drawn to the most beautiful thing in the room. We're drawn to the most delicious thing in the room. Um, and how amazing is it when that thing reveals itself to be something more, you know, um, that it reveals to be an image of... Um, war or an image of, you know, Islam or, you know, a completely different way of thinking about something. And that double bluff is a really powerful tool. Have you found yourself uh, in controversy or using your art uh, in controversial ways, which has, I guess, in a sense, changed the conversation? Um, and what I mean by that, we... At the Moroccan Super, we ran a campaign around the same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. And um, so one evening we were simply putting it and inviting people, no matter their thoughts or agreements, uh, with the topic that it wasn't okay for a society to cast judgment onto one another. And we took a stand and we took it unapologetically so. And we found ourselves, Muslim or otherwise, when the conversation was framed differently, most people got on board. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, we think Islam does not get on board same-sex conversation. But when we dared to take a stand in hospitality, over dinner, um, most people shifted their perspective. How do you find that in your art, um, that, that art uh, contributes to actively and, and I guess noticeably shifting people's perspective from one point of view to another simply by framing it differently? Mm. Well, I think that's the interesting thing in the nature of the places that I work in and difficult places is there's a really interesting systematic erasure and a systematic dominance to how something is talked about. And, you know, and when things are wiped out, it's really easy to kind of miscommunicate or misunderstand them. Um, and that's a really, really big driving force in my work. Um, so I think it's really important to present the kind of completely unarguable. So, for example, my last project was... Um, looking, uh, stu studying the evacuation of the Calais jungle refugee camp. And um, what's really interesting about a place like Calais is that people come from every direction uh, kind of across the continent. 
and then they come to uh, the northernmost point of France to try and hop a, a lorry or a truck um, or a boat to England. Um, and so what happens when a bunch of uh, people for 17 years kind of try and be as invisible as possible and as light-footed as possible uh, kind of inevitably culminate in one place uh, that then leaves a physical impact on the land. And, you know, and people who are kind of denied, um, I guess, um, testament to themselves, you know. And then I guess what, what kind of happened for me was data mapping... Um, years and years of the scars left on the land and within the evacuation, the burning and um, the existence of people that is completely and utterly, um, I guess, hard to deny, you know? Do you think artists have a responsibility to, uh, I guess, to be mindful of, of the political climate they're operating in? Mm. Um, I really don't think artists should be one thing or another, you know, and I also think there's nothing worse than um, kind of trying to communicate about something in a really token way and not mm -hmm. feeling it and not having the complete conviction, you know, so at the same time I don't want to oblige anybody to do it insincerely. Um, however, I guess the way that people have spoken about today is that, you know, it's something that is in our face and on our doorstep. And um, I think that's what I find really incredible about what you do is um, it kind of embodies this resilience and persistence um so like I, for anyone that hasn't been to moroccan soup bar like hana really changed my life <laughs> one night and i never told you this but i went in one night with my friend katie and um hana just says hey i was on the abc last night and i'm telling my story and this is me and this is what happened to me and this is the violence and here is a link and give me a number and i will mail you a link just so you triple make sure to watch it this woman, right? And um, I've, I've never kind of been like that, even with my own activism. And even though I've experienced really similar things to what you're talking about in there, I've never spoken about it publicly and I've never been yet strong enough to do so. And what I found really incredible is this really genuine um, uh, persistence, like in the best possible way, you know, complete and utter persistence. And, you know, every time I go in, Hana says, come speed date a Muslim. You know, come to the event and every time By I say... By the way, it's today. If you <laughs> want to come down Fed Square. Yeah. See? And every time I say the same thing back, I say, Han, I'm already speed dating a Muslim. And she says, come anyway. <laughs> you know? And I think that's the kind of genuine persistence that you need to kind of practice with and live with because I think there is nothing worse than, in a way, trivialising issues and uh, speaking about things that you're not ready to speak about, you know? Um, can, have we still got a bit of time? Yep. Uh, I, wa I wanted to talk about and just come back to the actual topic, which is about uh, diversity and, for me, the sense of dislocation and identity. Um, how, how and where do you find notions of home? Where is home, given that, I guess, similarly and for different reasons, our constructed identity or notions of home, we've moved around, our heritage is from different cultural contexts. How and do you find Australia home and or Melbourne? Um, and if so, how do we uh, contribute to an understanding of home for those who particularly who have come from different cultural and, and are afforded different uh, cultural heritage? Yeah, I think it's really interesting and I feel sometimes I'm so many intersections that I'm almost kind of feel very free because I feel so kind of unique in the things that cross over to make me, you know. 
Um, and I think what's been really interesting um, is that sometimes I feel really grateful. I feel really, really genuinely grateful for my displacement because what it's made me feel is that I feel at home absolutely everywhere and I never have a barometer of, you know, in this place the people are like me, in this place people are not like me. I don't blend in here. I think um, I have two passports to two countries I'm not really ethnically a part of, you know. Um, I'm kind of so adrift in so many ways and I think in a way it's made me feel like I could kind of blend in or, you know, have to kind of make do everywhere. Um, yeah, but what I think is really interesting is um, as much as we're talking about cultural diversity today, I think one thing that's been really, really missed and I think you do it really beautifully is um, cultural preservation. You know, there's no point talking about diversity and disseminating and sharing when we're also not archiving and protecting what it is that we culturally do and share. And in Australia, that is difficult. We are an isolated geographical, you know, mm. island and country. And um, I think that's what Moroccan Soup Bar does so well. Not only do you employ women uh, with a huge commonality and a huge support network, but they also communicate outwards, you know. Mm. And, and I guess just to add to that, that uh, it becomes a cultural expression of... Uh, I guess where gender, um, because oftentimes, particularly in, in, in a world where we look at diversity very tokenly, we find that we get our sense of diversity from very male-laden, male-heavy definitions of what that culture is. Yeah. And I think it's important when we look at diversity that we look at gendered culture diversity. And, and I think somebody earlier mentioned the, the privileges around class. So... Con conversations around the intersections, I guess. Um, one thing I just wanted to add, if we still have a bit of time, is, a, is around the dislocation. And I think, for me, growing up, I initially wanted to belong. I wanted to fit in. And you constantly try and fit yourself into a whole host of groups. Um, you're not Arabic enough, you're not Muslim enough, you're not woman enough, you're not feminist enough. And then I, th I think... Uh, something happens in your early 30s, you're too young to know this, but a freedom, um, a freedom kind of overcomes you and you find the freedom in the dislocation itself. And I think when we talk about global cities and cities for the future, it is in that dislocation that we can, we can take the transmission of, of uh, heritage and culture as we define it, um, but it is the dislocation that can detach from geographical attachment uh, to culture that, that I guess is the promise and is the hope for the future. And I think people like you are experts, I guess, in a sense and can take us on a journey for how to do uh, future globalised cities um, in, in a way where we have integrity um, of, of expression. Yeah, and I think also a big one is, and is kind of talking about kindness and compassion in these kind of bounds as well and talking about money and talking about integration and uh, I, what everybody said about kind of you know economic worth is really huge um, and I think that's a huge intersection of what we both do is what we do for money and also what we do for community and trade and outside of financial systems as support networks I think is really really big and I think we do need to talk about those things is what is genuine and what is also creating culture mm. is um, can't always be monetized you know and it is about charity and generosity, and I kind of really wish these ideas were in bigger public discourse, um, not just in Melbourne, not just in urbanism, but kind of globally as well. They're getting bigger. They yeah. Are, I yeah. One more. 
Um, and maybe to those who don't know, do you want to just say a little bit about your art tattooing and how you trade it for dinner? Yeah. Maybe just as yeah. a, it's, it's an amazing thing. I might get some art done by, by the end of this. Yeah. but I just got to eat. It's hard. Um, <laughs> no, so I'm a really, really big believer in alternative economies and uh, I'm also very lucky to have an art practice that is quite supported. Um, and so, but also it makes my drawings expensive and obviously from the sound of what I do, it's a really expensive practice. So I, um, and like you would see as well, that not everybody can afford dinner and, you know, sometimes you have to kind of pass on your skills in a really altruistic way. Um, so I just started tattooing my drawings onto my friends um, and now I've been doing it for 10 years and I've never taken a cent for it, never taken a public appointment for it. Um, and then what I found is that it was a way to kind of really actively give to my immediate community. Um, not only kind of like a really emotional and deeply kind of present service, but also, yeah, one thing that kind of let people s trade their skills and trade their talents and feel really good about what they had to give. Um, that was completely outside of what they are as a financial being. And it's a real, and I, I'm really careful about talking about this. Um, also because, you know, someone who's seen a lot of poverty in the circumstances I was raised in, um, I have a really, really deep belief that poverty is violence. And I am never, ever saying that money is not, you know, consequential or anything like that because it's, you know, uh, a tremendous sense of mobility. But also it, it's a kind of sense of mobility with a limit. And I think that also really needs to be discussed, you know, and in diversity. It's, ha ha you know, how do we be ourselves? How do we culturally preserve ourselves for free? Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you Absolutely. so much, Hannah. What an enriching conversation. Norman, can I please invite you to the stage? Uh, all right, I'm going to do the same. You can have as many sentences as you want. Who are you? That's the greatest mistake. Seriously, the last time someone told me to speak about myself, they had to close the function because I had not finished. <laughs> but I try to summarize. Ah. Well, I'm Norman. I grew up in a good family. We are about eight. No, not eight, 15. <laughs> yeah, 15. And it was only at around when I was 13 that I knew that we are only four siblings, all the others we are just people whom my dad used to pick from different places. He finds you, you need something, says, why don't you go to school? I have a problem, come home. And all grew up as a family. At the end of the day, we were brothers and sisters. We helped each other, and nobody knows, save for the few people who knew in the family that they are not brothers. All of them say, you are brothers. Sometimes say, but you are the same age. So that's my background. I like talking. <laughs> because I did communication, I did journalism, I love photography, and I love everything, and I have this idea. People always say we create a better world for our future. I don't believe in that. I believe you create a better future for the world because the future that's destroying the world, not we destroying the future. Mm. I told you I'll speak so much. Let <laughs> me just end there at least. That's the brief of who Norman is. So I think the biggest biographical commonality between you and I is that we've both experienced civil war in our homes. Um, 
I guess with you, it's since 1987, you know, which is longer than I've been alive, and um, you know, Ukraine is three years in. Uh, but I think they're both wars of kind of very much 21st century wars, that they're prolonged, that they're, they're not kind of the way that we understand war to be through history. Um, and also, both of our countries are very diverse countries, you know, very religiously diverse, ethnically diverse, a lot of languages. Um, that's obviously something that drives the civil war, um, but it also kind of drives reconciliation and a future and, you know, a kind of sense of healing and um, optimism. So I kind of wanted to ask about diversity in Uganda to begin with. Where does it work and where does it not work? Uh, I think diversity is just a word created by people to just create a difference. In Uganda, I come from a country which has 52 languages, 52? Over 52 languages. I come from central Uganda, which is Uganda. And in our own tribe, we have 52 clans. But apart from the indication which is on books, at the end of the day, we are human beings. And the way we are born is, like I told you, the, the family I came with, we have some Tanz Tanzanians. I, we had one actually, that's from northern Uganda. But they're all brothers. We, in fact, if you ask somebody, what is your tribe? It's like you're abusing me. We do not believe in the differences. It's just a creation which is about to break people up and cause disharmony. We believe that you are human beings. We believe that we all have hope. We have the same. If given the same circumstances, we can all shine. And that's the background I've brought up. And when you say war, war is not brought about by the diversity, by different opinions. It's brought about by individuals whom I say it's brought about by greed. The lack of people presenting themselves as the best. I always say using yourself as a standard for others to live. If I'm, I'm rich, everybody should be rich. If I'm poor, everybody should be poor. If I believe in this, everybody should believe in this. That's the creation of war. It's not about difference in uh, tribe or difference in uh, regions. It's just about wanting people to be what you are, which can't happen. And that's why war will still go on. Until we realize that we as human beings, we can look at the few differences and look at, let us look at the two things that create us together, that make us together, and give hope. That's what we should build on, and create a better world. It's not all about what you don't do. It's about what can I get from you, which can work together, and create a world. And that's what I believe in. And is that the thinking that influences your work with the Asylum Seeker Resource Center here? Yes, and that I think... Well, when I went to SSI, first of all, I'll tell you, I'm... Um, the longest person in America. I've lived, I'm sorry, in Australia. I've lived in Australia for so long, one year and five months. <laughs> and when I came to Australia in May, I was in a building. I had a good fridge, had a TV. It was three bedrooms. I had a wife. But we could sit there. You know, sitting together, two people in a house. And I tell you, you are getting bored. I was getting stressed. And I said, what should I do? That's when I got a friend and told me to go to SRC. And the reason why I went to SRC was not 
to get anything. It was just I wanted to see people. I wanted to talk to people. I just wanted to tell somebody hi, and it was hi. You know, I came in winter, and there are two things I discovered in winter. People don't smile. You board a train, everybody's either reading his book or in his mobile phone. You don't know what your neighbor is going through. You go on the streets, everybody's, it is what I don't mind. So I went to Esther, and the first thing I went to Esther is the first time I go to somebody whom I don't know who greeted me and asked me, how are you? Are you okay? Best things, not giving me, not, not giving me anything, but just asking me, are you okay? Are you fine? So when I went to Esther, I said, can I do some volunteering? I said, okay, we need people to do volunteer once a day. I told him, how many days are you open? They said, five days. I said, okay. I'm ready to volunteer for five days. And I started volunteering to SRC. Because I could meet people, just talk to people. And I thought it was not only me. There are so many people there who just want to say, somebody to say hi to them. They just want somebody to smile to them and tell them, you're okay. That's the only thing they want. They don't want money. They don't want food. They have everything. They just want a smile and giving them hope. And that's how I started volunteering. Because I'd been through it. And I, wanted, I, don't, I don't want people to be through it. I can't change most of the, most of the things. But maybe... I can give a smell to somebody and smell back to somebody and smell back to somebody and somebody smells back to somebody and at the end of the day we'll have a smelling Melbourne. And I think everybody will love a smelling Melbourne. No, I think it's so similar to what Hannah does and what she was talking about is, yeah, the things that are so connective and kind and outside of money, you know, I think they're the things that at the core we have to remember in talking about diversity, you know, and that's the thing that cuts across everything at the end of the day. Um, I wanted to ask about the circumstances that brought you to Australia um, and whether you see the terrorist attack with the same kindness and how do you reconcile it and how do you um, deal with something like that in, uh, in a kind of future-looking way? Uh, well, circumstances are too tough. I don't want make, to make people cry because the last time I spoke, people cried. One thing I'll tell you is, I've been through so much. And so hard. There's nothing like starting a new life somewhere. Yeah. You know, there are things we take for granted. I always tell people, I am proud. I'm a journalist. I've traveled over 45 countries. I've interviewed presidents, prime ministers, name them. I've been to Olympic Games. I have a passport. I, I could not hold a passport. You know, you know, you are not like Australia, where sometimes don't get the passport. For us, in our country, whenever you are going out, you have to get a visa. And that means two pages of your passport have to go. And I've never held a passport for more than two years, which means that at least I should be traveling every average of one and a half months. And coming back to my building, my home, driving my car, feeling well. So when I moved away from that, and I found myself in a building, the first thing was, to hell with everybody who caused it. But after some time, I said, well, why should I give out? Why should I be forced to give out what I don't have? Because hmm? there's a story that goes around and says, you see, you always give out what you have in your heart. Say, so why should I, why should I swear? Why do, should I wish people death? That's not my being. I believe in love. So, okay, you did it, yes. Maybe at one time you'll find yourself in that situation, and you say, what I did was wrong. I apologize, but for me, the best thing I can give is to pray for you. And may you have love. 
and realize that what you did was wrong and move on because I don't believe in the past. Why you are keeping behind, why you are keeping into trouble is always we tend to focus so much on what happened to us in the past. And whenever you focus on what happened to you in the past, you never move forward. Whenever you think about what somebody did to you, you never go a step forward. It has happened, yes. Where do I move from here? Where do I start in life? And that's what has really helped me go on. I already think about, so what? What's next? Because if I stumble and fall, and I spend more time looking at why I, the thing that made me stumble, I'll not raise up. But if I fall, what next? Raise up, walk, and take advice that this does not happen again. And that's my focus. I believe in whatever happens in life. It happens, yes. You don't have any effort to change it, but you can move on and create another image so that nothing happens again that will take you back to what happens next. Mm. And that's how I look at it. We can all move forward. So many things have happened to so many of us. Everybody has experienced something. But why should we sit down and cry and look behind? Why don't we move forward and say, okay, it has happened. Why don't I use it as a springboard to go another one? That's what I've used a springboard to go on and create a more smiles for everybody. I mean, and I feel like that's in really beautifully spoken as a journalist as well. Um, do you, is, this is the last question, I'm afraid, but um, what do you think are the universalities for journalists? What, uh, what do you think that all journalists are bound to do in these circumstances a, a, in diversity, across borders, across countries, across continents? What is the fundamental thing for journalists to do? Uh, universality, you see, when the moment we leave universality for one kind of profession, we are bound to fail. A journalist, an artist, a musician will only do what he can be able to do. But the end of the day is to us as the world. And the problem with the world is when, when they say it is to us as the world, people will say, okay, as the world. It's to me as an individual. What have I done to the universality point of it? As a journalist, I write. I'll take photos. As an artist, he will paint. As a musician, he will sing. But to you as an individual, what are you doing? What am I doing to unite the world? And it goes back to two things. We are all born innocent. I'll ask anybody who knew that he was an Australian when he was being born. Who knew that he was doing this? Who knew that he was rich? It is because of the situations, the conditions that our parents, that our culture put us into that becomes so much in our life that we start hating. We start looking, looking, under looking at other people and start doing other things. That's why we come up with laws. But in universality, there's nothing like law. There are things that do not need law. I don't need the law to love you, to smell at you. Do I need the law to smell at you? And that's what us journalists should be doing. We should remind people that there are things in this world that don't need laws. And other the things that we need in the world. The moment you start having laws, you know there's something, there's a problem. Because things that are natural do not need law. I, not, I don't need the law to come and say, hi, how are you? I don't need the law. Because it is natural. I don't need the law to be patient. I don't need the law to do so many things that are natural. So, as journalists, we do our part, write the stories, tell you what you do. But at the end of the day, these stories are aimed at you people, at me, 
even when I'm writing, so that I can have a change and I create a change and an impact for the world to be a better place. Thank you, Norman. It's Thank you so much, yeah. Stavislava. Can I please invite Leah to the stage for our final baton change? <laughs> Leah, this is Norman. Norman, this is Leah. <laughs> Thanks, Smith. <laughs> the worst thing is to speak to a journalist when you're a journalist. <laughs> you always used to be behind and getting it. But Leah, nice meeting you. <laughs> nice to meet you. And we'll ask... I know you, the people don't know you. Can you just briefly speak about yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Who am I? Um, I edit Liminal Magazine, which is an online... Oh, is this what? Yeah. <laughs> um, which is an online space for the interrogation and exploration of the Asian-Australian identity. Um, so I suppose like a similar kind of related to your work in photojournalism but we publish long-form interviews with Asian Australians every week. And the first thing, the first question I'll be asking will be, beyond diversity, creating global cities, how do you look at your workplace and how do you think, can you, are you helping me creating a global city? Ooh. <laughs> um, I find the concept of a global city really interesting, um, especially in terms of the signifiers of Asian and Australian together as an identity, um, being both like deeply porous um, concepts of identity, but also utterly like fragmented. They don't mean anything really at all. <laughs> and a global city, I think also, I'm not sure if it m makes sense. Um, but in terms of diversity, I guess what we do at Liminal is attempt to shift tokenism so make sure that we're not just diverse tokens within society and shift it so we are a central focal point. We're not liminal anymore. Um, we, become, we become an exemplar of what like, excellence in diversity can be. Yeah, that's very good. And I was reading through your magazine and I say, how do you form these stories? When you're speaking to people, how do you prepare so that the story really give them the view of what your idea is? Yeah, no worries. Um, so the concept is that we break apart what Asian can mean. So instead of finding an authentic Asian story, we kind of try to display the multiplicity. So allowing people to represent themselves as they are rather than as they should be or represented by someone else as a stereotype or something that neatly fits what our conception of Asian or a diverse body is. Yeah, and do you think as these stories, as the Asians speak them, do you think they have been able to really aim blend within this diversity? Uh, can I say, do you think the people you are speaking to have been able to blend and really feel that they are at home as in diversity? Do you feel, do you feel that they're at home when they're here? In Melbourne? In Melbourne, yes. Um, it's interesting. <laughs> Definitely. 
<laughs> the conception of what a what a home is, especially as many of us are settlers on lands that have been stolen, never ceded. Um, I think we make our own conception of home. Um, like in an effort to kind of exist within white structures, um, within this like <laughs> white supremacy, how I think the question is how do we create a home for ourselves? Um, how do we become comfortable um, within a society which isn't built for us? How do we build, build structures which are, like aid us and comfort us but also can therefore be kind of projected throughout society, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and maybe moving forward, how do you look at yourself and your magazine in the next five years? How do you look, yourself at, look at yourself and your magazine and your works in the next five years? Mostly through helping people living together and believing in each other. How do we look at yourself? Yeah. In the years. How do we consider like myself within? Okay. How do you view the future? Oh no. They always say English is my second language. How do I view the future? I really liked what you were saying before about instead of creating a world for the future, creating a future for our world. I think conceptually that's really important. Um, I think, uh, who said it before something also about really requiring vision in order to shift and change the way we, I suppose, view diversity and view how we can break apart diversity just as an aesthetic function into something that is more of a state of mind, something we can kind of integrate into our daily lives in a way to change and create a better future for the world. Uh, by the way, for God's sake, congratulations for being nominated one of <laughs> the youngest Australian for there. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, you, huh? What really made this nomination? Um, what did you do to warrant this nomination? I'd, I don't know. I think there are so many... <laughs> I was like very, um, I have very complex feelings about this nomination um, because at the moment I don't really, well I definitely don't, it's run by the Australia Day Council <laughs> and I have very complicated feelings about the concept of Australia Day um, and or Invasion Day and celebrating the genocides of our in Indigenous peoples and then also I'm not a big fan of the current um, government. <laughs> Um, and the fact that a few weeks ago we voted that it's okay to be white. Guys, it's okay to be white. <laughs> um, so that, that was very complex. I think also just understanding that these awards mean a lot but also mean nothing is, is quite a dissonant experience. Um, but it also just means that um, people are listening to the project that we're, we've created and understand that it's important to hear from diverse voices and stories and it's really nice and we'll just keep continuing to do it. Yeah, maybe people would like to hear more about that project you created. Uh, sorry? 
people would like to hear more about the project. Yeah, um, so Liminal started off um, kind of as, uh, in relation to my master's thesis, um, which looked at Asian American um, poetry and bodies in relation to space. Um, and I came back um, from London and decided that I wanted to have conversations with people um, just about what it means to um, live as an Asian Australian um, in Australian space and what it means to be a creative practitioner within the media, which has very little representation of people of colour in general, um, but also um, Asian Australians. So that started off as a very small project that was meant to be maybe 20 interviews maximum. Um, but we're just about to publish our 79th interview, which is really exciting, um, and a print edition in December. So it's still going. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Uh, I was looking, you've been in so many, you've worked with so many galleries, art galleries. Yes. And looking at art galleries, one of the messages they always give out is unity in diversity. Hmm. If through your experience, what do you think can be done better in the galleries so that people really understand the... Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about structural racism um, and how we can shift institutional whiteness. And I think, obviously, as was mentioned before, we just need to hire more people of colour and give them... Don't just program them, allow them to do the programming. Um, give them like uh, an ability to make decisions and to like effectively decolonize an institution rather than just being given a platform to speak um, on it. And maybe the last question is, if you are given one minute to speak about diversity, what would you say? One word. Minute. One minute. Oh no, <laughs> I just had 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, now I'm stressed. Um, <laughs> I think diversity is a good word. I think it needs to be more of a practice. It needs to be interrogated. It reminds me of the concept of wokeness and how wokeness isn't just something you achieve, but how you need to stay woke and constantly be considering what it like considering your positionality and the work you do within society and how you can pull other people who have been traditionally marginalised up with you. Thanks very much, Leah. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you I so much, Norman. I think it was a tough question. Maybe <laughs> next time I'll try to... I'm a journalist. You always try next time and it becomes harder. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, well, so much has changed since we started today. There is now an appearance of a son and you've joined us through these incredible conversations to what is now the final conversation. And I feel so thankful for everyone who's come before us and shared their experiences, their stories. And now, Leah, I hand over to you. Oh, yay. <laughs> so I'm gonna talk to Nevena, which is very exciting. Um, I feel like we've already done all of our homework. <laughs> um, you can you can explain yourself if you'd like. I can also explain you. I wrote it down. <laughs> oh, well, why don't you give it a crack? Okay, okay. Are you ready? Um, 
Nivena is a political and social change activist and campaigner whose activism is centered around homeless advocacy, social justice, achieving equitable legislative reform. She's the vice president of the National Homeless Collective, the charity which oversees the operations of Melbourne Period Project, Secret Women's Business and more. And I really like this line from her Twitter bio, Nevena campaigns for good, but hopes for better. Perfect. Thank Thanks. you so much. <laughs> no worries. Um, so I was going to ask you um, if you think the term diversity is holding us back, but <laughs> we've done that already. Um, and I think I'll just go straight into it. Um, Stanislava mentioned before that poverty is essentially a kind of violence. Um, and <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've been doing really good work as like the Vice President of the National Homeless Collective. Do you agree and can you like explicate on kind of this, yeah, the state of affairs at the moment? I don't think you have to have much experience with poverty itself directly to see how oppressive it is and how violent it is. I think anyone who's experienced our city and seen it change and seen what that means for the people who live in our city and have no place because they are legislated against. They are not given an opportunity to grow beyond that. And that happens in such small ways. That can happen from uh, Doyle, who was our previous uh, Lord Mayor, which is just such a crap title and one that he wholeheartedly didn't deserve to reclassify the experience of using land as a home, as camping, so then people could be moved on. We, in our work with uh, National Homeless Collective, were very involved in that process. And as someone who's experienced homelessness and what that means to be completely devoid of space, of place, that is, it's just so crushing because if you can't meet your basic needs um, in those times of your life, then it's so difficult to be able to change other things that you want to. Um, and I think a, sm a big part of that is actually the, the Melbourne Period Project, which can you please tell us more about that? Because it's a phenomenal. Um, I'm so happy to be involved with Melbourne Period Project. So what we do is create period packs for women and trans men and non-binary people experiencing homelessness. And simply by stating that, we acknowledge that it's not women who bleed, it's people who bleed. And we feel that's a really important core of what we do. And throughout the city, we work with frontline homelessness agencies. We work with people who are sleeping in cars, under bridges, to deliver this basic need by acknowledging that if we can help literally plug a hole, then we can help people move on to another part of their life. And this can be just managing basic hygiene. So that sleeping bag lasts that little bit more. It can mean seeking a service, going to a job interview, if that is what you need to do in that particular part of your life. It's just something you wouldn't consider if you haven't been in that place or had that thought. But if someone can provide something for you that the government can't, that's where we see the importance of what the Period Project does. That's huge. Um, I've been thinking, in a sense, how race is so much easier to talk about than class. Um, and and kind of just also how a white supremacy <laughs> doesn't really account for homelessness, as, like even of white people. Um, 
And which I think is kind of where the current iteration of the term diversity falls short. Do you have any thoughts on this? I, I think we're getting to the, the stage now where we're, we have more language around what it is to, to live in poverty, to what it is, to, for what role capitalism plays in that and what role as people who benefit from capitalism, um, how we can directly challenge that while maintaining any kind of life that is meaningful to us. And as so many other people and guests have said, that how we can share some of those resources to create not even a future, but a now for people who need it more than us. Um, but again, I just return to so many experiences that I had when I was homeless. It's If you can't satisfy your basic living needs, you, it's so difficult to be able to plan ahead. It, you, you can't... You can't dream and it, it's a crushing reality and it returns to what now and how. It was just those thoughts that always used to um, just sit with me like, what the fuck is it that I do? <laughs> Honestly. Um, so switching tack, last year you founded High Alert. Um, in relation to the Victorian government's Operation Safe Night. <laughs> Can you speak to the need for drug law reform and harm reduction tactics, which obviously just flow back right into the work you're doing with homeless people, but yeah. I think uh, banning substances is one of the uh, most absurd concepts. Just to, to draw the line further back, the government wanted to ban wattle a uh, couple of years ago because you can distill it down into a psychoactive substance to change your state. So then by extension of that, we have drawn an arbitrary line in what is and isn't an acceptable experience for people to have. We've decided alcohol in all of its glory is absolutely fine. You can go to the pub at 10 a.m. if you want to ingest that substance. Cigarettes, one of the largest killers in our world, go for it, it's fine. We've found a way to tax it. And we've also found a way for it to, though we've removed it from our everyday experience, it's, it's a normality. And then we have all these other things. We have drugs. Um, and they're just so poorly legislated, which pushes people into stigmatization. It pushes people away from seeing these as the substances that people should be educated about and if they have issues with them, to seek assistance with. So what happened with Operation Safe Night is two years ago, three young people lost their lives taking a substance that they thought was MDMA, which turned out to be a chemical basically known as alphabet soup. There are so many letters in it, I'd have to join a few alphabets together. The government's response, instead of dealing with this in any kind of meaningful way, was to militarise Chapel Street. And I literally mean bring in armed forces in Operation Task Force to have people undercover in nightclubs, in sniffer dogs. And of course, when these operations are conducted, it's not people like me physically that are searched first and foremost. It is others. Um, and it, it was a shambles. Uh, they, the police weren't expecting any kind of resistance to this project and uh, being able to physically challenge it in the presence of being there, uh, in the presence of the media, meant that police had to pivot 
from this being a drug operation to then a roadside safety operation to then an operation that had all information on the internet removed about it because it was an abject failure. They were literally shooting drugs in a barrel and they couldn't find drugs. It cost millions and hundreds of millions of dollars and what we could have done with that meaningfully is more questionable than the entire operation itself. I think the misuse of <laughs> mismanagement of funds has come up several times today. Um, I think we're almost at time, yeah. but um, I suppose I'd love to know what your vision for a global city would be in the context of the work that you do. I think, um, and I have been thinking for quite some time about what it is to be, what, what this global city is. I was talking about it with some friends last night and someone was like, well, it's, uh, let, let's put it on a bloat, boat and float it in the ocean. I'm like, well, that's kind of what this land is now, like just take away the mechanics and we're floating in that ocean. For me, uh, a global city is one that treats people with dignity and the dignity to have space, where space is not a privilege, uh, where a space is a right, where you can find uh, a meaningful home and as well as meaning in your life and also that help is there when you need it. Just basic compassion uh, to be able to have an existence that means something to you and your community and pulling away from cities. And I think one of the previous speakers put it so well, building communities instead of cities. Thanks, Nevada. Um, big round of applause for Nevada. For you. Thank you so much, <laughs> Leah. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you so much to M Pavilion, everyone who stayed. Please go enjoy the sunshine and I hope you had something fantastic in your day today. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.